Hello everyone, this is the Commercial Real Estate Investing from A to Z podcast, and I'm your host, Steph Bodrini. This podcast is for everyone who wants to be part of our real estate family and learn commercial real estate investing from A to Z. I'll be sharing tips and tricks for commercial real estate investing while being mentored by a few people with several years of experience. My goal is to keep things very straightforward because you're busy, I'm busy, everyone is busy, and we're here to learn. With that, in the last episode, we learned how you can get into real estate investing with no money. We also learned what the financials would look like under that partnership. In this episode, we'll learn how you can manage multiple companies at the same time, how to hire and inspire the best employees so that they grow your companies, We'll learn what types of asset classes and what markets are interesting to invest in today's market. And super, super importantly, we will learn in detail what are opportunity zones and how you can leverage opportunity zones in your investments. Here we go. We are here with Greg Dickerson. He is a serial entrepreneur, real estate developer, coach, and mentor over the last 20 years, he has bought, developed, and sold over $200 million in real estate. He built and renovated hundreds of custom homes and commercial buildings and started 12 different companies from the ground up. Do you mind sharing a little bit more about your background and then we can jump into some specific questions? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. You know, it's been a 22, 23 year career. I started in 1997. I joined the Navy right out of high school in 85. In 1989, I got out of the Navy and I worked uh, in restaurants and I had a construction company on the side during the day. So the two things I've done my entire life prior to starting my entrepreneurial journey was restaurants and construction. And I was in management restaurants, so I learned all about business and management and leadership and how to recruit, hire, train, manage, motivate, and lead people. And then I've always had an interest in construction and, you know, I was kind of handy and I enjoyed doing projects. So I always had a little side business where I built decks or fences or, or whatever. So military family. So we traveled around a lot and I'm a surfer, lifelong surfer since I was a little kid. And the best surf on the East Coast is the Outer Banks of North Carolina. It's like the Hawaii of the East Coast. I always wanted to live there. So in 1997, I moved there and I was going to open a restaurant. And instead of doing that, I got into construction. There was a, uh, it was a busy time. It was pre-boom. I had bought a house and I was trying to get an addition built on the house and I couldn't get anybody to call me back and uh, show up to give me a quote. So I said, wow, you know, I started talking to my neighbors and they're like, oh yeah, everybody's so busy. They can't even, they can't even return your phone call. So I wow. said, well, where there's a problem, there's an opportunity, right? That's what entrepreneurs do. They solve problems and create opportunities. So I started a construction company. It was a little remodeling company and it was just me, my truck and tools. And I would do whatever I could do. My first year I did 250,000 in sales by myself. And then uh, by my seventh year, I was one of the largest builder developers there. I was at $30 million a year. I'd started 12 other companies along the way during that seven year period, all related to the construction industry, except for a couple of restaurants, but plumbing company, pool spa, landscaping company, electrical company, hurricane shutter company, painting company. I like to help people. I like to coach and mentor people. That's what I've been my entire life. And that's how I did so many things at the same time was by leading, motivating, and uh, delegating 
to others and teaching others how to be entrepreneurial and, and helping them and coming alongside them and helping them build businesses. And for those of you who have not figured this out yet, people that have been in the military are one of the best partners you could ever get, similar to people that have founded their own startups or companies, because they know work ethics and they are incredible. So just a little side note there. That's awesome. Yeah. Work ethic, diligence, discipline, and uh, a stick to itness that, uh, that a lot of people don't have these days. How do you make sure that you're successful when you're doing everything from fundraising to investing in all kinds of asset classes, like you were saying, construction. You also have done multifamily, industrial, medical center offices. How do you make sure that everything moves forward? First and foremost, it's education. So I didn't go to college, but I am very highly self-educated. I've always developed myself personally and professionally, poured into myself. I've never owned one song. Back when it was books on tape, I had I had tapes and CDs. They were all audiobooks and courses. When it was an iPod, it was all same thing, audiobooks and courses. And even now in my phone, nothing but business and personal and professional development. In order to accomplish things, whether it's a nonprofit or if it's a business or if it's a real estate deal, you need a visionary, you need a leader. The developer on the real estate side or the leader on the community side has to have a vision first and foremost. So you start with the end in mind. What is it that you're trying to accomplish? You create this vision. You have to be able to communicate that vision in a way that people understand it and they can see it even though it's not there. But more importantly, you got to put together the right team and you have to inspire the results out of that team, delegate, motivate, and lead. How do you make sure that people are inspired and how do you pick the best people to work for you? You find winners and champions and coach them to success. Usually the best people are the ones that would approach me on a business level or intuition. I have a real, I have a gift for discernment of people. So I just know mm -hmm. how to find good people. And I know when I'm talking to somebody and working with somebody, whether they're good people or not, or whether they're they're going to actually be able to accomplish something or not. I do more listening than talking. So when I'm interviewing somebody, I let them do all the talking. The one mistake that a lot of people make in the interview process, they spend all their time pitching their company or their idea. And then I give them an audition. We have an agreement up front that this may or may not be the right fit for you. We may not be the right company. You may not be the right person. We're going to try this. And I let them tell me how a job gets done or how to build something. And I measure performance and hold people accountable. So I provide clear direction, no uncertain terms, exactly what's expected and when. As a leader, it's, that's what our job is, is to serve the individuals and the organizations and give them everything they need, tools, training systems, and support to be successful. But more importantly, clear direction and no uncertain terms, exactly what's expected and when. Then you measure that performance, compare it to the goal that was set, and you have an accountability session. They've either achieved it or they haven't. If they haven't achieved it, you look back at the leader. Did I give them everything they need to be successful? Did they know exactly what was expected and when? And when you measure that, you either got the result you're looking for or you didn't. And if you did everything as a leader that you were supposed to do and you didn't get the result, then you either have the wrong person or you have the right person in the wrong position. Not everybody is right for every role. More than anything else, it's been intuition and that gut instinct about people. And I'm here nodding my head. I agree with you in all of these points. It's really funny how many people don't listen and they love talking. Kudos for you for leveraging that because People do love to talk. They do. And you learn more. You know, you learn more that way, whether it's an interview or whether it is a deal. So if you're looking for an investor in a deal and you want to build a relationship, let the other person talk. They're going to tell you what they're looking for and then you'll know how to best serve them. And that's what we do as leaders. We serve our, our teams, our people, our organizations. Is now a good time to invest in commercial real estate? And if yes, what are your top favorite markets? 
it's always a good time to invest in commercial real estate, but it's not always a great time to invest in every asset class. And every market is specific. So real estate is what I call, you know, everybody says real estate's local. I call it hyper-local, meaning real estate is local down to the block of the neighborhood within the city and the subdivision you're investing in. You could say, hey, multifamily is a great safe place all across the country, which it is. It's the safest bet from a real estate investment standpoint, especially at the low A, high B level. That's an asset class that's probably never gonna go away. People need housing, right? So when you start going down in your B, C, D classes, that can get a little risky in certain areas, but they can be slam dunks in certain areas. On the commercial side, you've got multifamily, office, retail, industrial, land, and you've got hospitality. And there's different classes within all those assets. If you look at what the REITs are doing and what our institutional investors are doing, they're going for primary markets and going after class A assets in this economy right now. And a lot of them, they're just buying bonds and they're paying four caps, three caps in some areas. Sovereign wealth funds are coming to this country and they're buying property in New York. San Francisco, San Diego, Seattle, Charlotte. They're going to the major markets, the primary markets, DC, and they're buying these trophy class A assets because they feel like that's a safe long-term bet, almost like a treasury, almost like a T-bill, right? And then for the rest of us in the world, we have to look at a different angle because we're not going to be able to compete on that level with those buyers. So we have to look at the secondary and tertiary markets. And then within those secondary and tertiary markets on the commercial asset side, right now, I really like certain kinds of office. I like destination office where you have medical, dental, professional office space that people need an office for that they can't work out of their house. When you think about investing in office, you got to think about the environment that we're in now and how everything is outsourced. Everybody's working remotely. So you want to invest in types of office space that cannot be used out of the home. Medical, dental, some professionals, there's certain core services in the office sector, same thing as retail. Well, that landscape is really changing right now. And you got to be real careful where retail is. I love suburban strip centers where you've got your Starbucks, your Chipotle, hair cuttery, nail place, you know, that kind of thing. Those are core services that in any economic cycle, people are always going to need those and they're always going to go to those to a certain level. There never will be a time when Starbucks has zero customers unless, you know, they do something really crazy. But in general, people are going to go out for a cup of coffee every once in a while. They're going to get Chipotle every once in a while. They're going to use those small core services, the McDonald's of the world, you know, things like that. I'm not a fan of single tenant, triple net assets. A lot of people like those, like your pharmacies and your restaurants and things like that. Problem with that is you have one tenant and when they're gone, it's very difficult to fill that space. Regional malls and power centers in certain areas can be good, but I'm not going into that asset class. I'd rather do the smaller strip centers, spread that out, diversify in, in several markets with those. And then warehouse is a great space to be in right now with the growth of Amazon and online shipping and things like that. Those companies are looking for industrial parks and satellite warehousing areas because everybody's competing for that instant delivery. So they got to have warehouse fulfillment centers close to the suburban markets all over the country in order to do that. I do like the explanation for the medical offices. Who's an office user that cannot work out of their house? And that's what you want to own. You coach investors as well. What are some common characteristics of mentees that become very successful? People that pour into themselves, that educate themselves, that learn everything they can, and that are doers. I find champions and coach them to success. So I look for people that We'll get out there, get it done, and take action. I like to help people do things in their life that they never thought possible. Mindset's a big part of it. I help people open their mind to think to ideas and opportunities that they just didn't even know were there, much less that they could do. But you got to be able to take action. Let's chat a bit about opportunity zones. There are so many facets <laughs> to opportunity zones. I would love for you to explain what it is from the beginning, and then we can talk about how people can leverage opportunity zones in their own investments. The bottom line is the Tax and Jobs Act in 2017 
gave the governors of all the states in the United States the ability to designate certain areas as opportunity zones. The idea behind this was to incentivize investment into lower income areas, primarily in business and in real estate assets. So each governor was able to go through their state and pick out within cities of the state opportunity zones. So you can go Google that and you can look at a map in your area and you can look at the opportunity zones in your area. So as you're looking for property, you can easily uh, pick those things out and figure out where you need to be investing in. That's what it was really created for. It was created to spur investment in business and in real estate in lower income distressed area. It's a place for you to defer a capital gain. So let's say you sell stock, you sell art, you sell property, anything that generates a capital gain, you can invest into an opportunity zone fund. And for the first five years, 10% of that gain is uh, written off. After seven years, you get an additional 5%. And then after 10 years, anything that you make on that gain is tax free. They just came out with some new guidance that you can do some refinancing and you can sell assets and reinvest another opportunity zone within a year and roll it over. So you could go invest a $1 million gain, make $10 million on it in a year or two, reinvest that gain and just keep going and going and going. And the only thing you will ever pay capital gains on is that initial million dollar gain after the 10 year period. If you do a project and let's say you have a million dollar gain and you invest it and it becomes 2 million, you sell it in a year or two and then you reinvest that 2 million, then the clock starts ticking again on the five, seven and 10 years. Every time you reinvest, you have to hold it 10 years to get the full benefit of that gain to be tax free at the end of the day on, on that reinvestment. Somebody said, Hey, do opportunity zone funds buy property? And opportunity zone funds do not buy property. And almost all of the opportunity zone funds are equity investors. So they invest equity into projects because it's all about leverage. So they're not direct buyers. It's equity to be used for projects and opportunity zones. The other thing to keep in mind is not all opportunity zones are created equal and not all opportunity zone properties are going to be exponentially worth more. So property owners are realizing, hey, my property's in an opportunity zone. I can double the price. It doesn't work that way. The opportunity zone project still needs to be in a good area. It still needs to be a good project on its own merit. The opportunity zone aspect is just icing on the cake. So it's not stupid capital that's chasing opportunity zone deals. And actually, it's even more intelligent and more patient capital than 1031 money. So 1031 exchange money, a lot of times can be stupid capital. They'll do things and they'll buy properties and pay more just because they have an exchange to make. Opportunity zone funds aren't doing that. We're not seeing that in the opportunity zone side. Again, you've got to look at the market and look at the ratings. So there's another website. Uh, out there when you look at opportunity zones, you'll find a website where they rate opportunity zones and they look at income levels in different opportunity zones in different states and cities. You wanna make sure you've got a good, highly rated opportunity zone. You wanna make sure your project stands on its own. It's gonna generate an 18 to 22% IRR minimum for the investors if you're looking for equity. That's a real quick rundown of opportunity zones and how, how those things work. And there are some caveats to it as well. You have to spend a certain dollar amount in that building in order to get the tax yeah, rate? It's called substantial improvement test. So you can't just go buy a performing multifamily asset and shelter that gain. And the idea was to spur investment. So you have to either invest in a business. It can be any business and you know there is no substantial improvement test for a business, but there is for real estate assets. And if it's a vacant building, it has to have been vacant for five years. And then you can go in there and sweep it out, paint it, do whatever. Very minimal investment on that. But if it's a performing asset, meaning it's been in service in the past five years and has not been vacant, or let's say it's vacant for two years of the past, whatever. So if it's been in service, then you have to come in and spend an equal amount of capital that's equivalent to the value of the asset, not including the land. So if you buy a building that's worth $5 million and the land is $3 million of that, so the building itself is valued at two, you have to spend $2 million on that building 
if it's a building that has been in service and has not been vacant. If it's a vacant building, it has to have been vacant more than five years, and then you don't have to meet that substantial improvement test. It's been talked about a lot, but there are quite a few moving parts. So Steve Glickman, his website is developadvisors.com. A lot of great information. I'll post the link to his website under notes. Is there anything else that you think our audience should know? At the end of the day, I think what it boils down to is education. Understand the asset classes. Each of them have their own nuances. They each have their own language. They each have their own metric. And they each have their own opportunities, especially in the opportunities zone. So I love commercial real estate. I think I think there's a lot of opportunity in retail still. Uh, office is great. Warehouse is really good. Land can be really good. Find out where the demand is. Don't go by the mantra like opportunity zones. A lot of them are in rural areas. So people say, oh, wow, it's an opportunity zone. I can go build this little town, mm-hmm. you know, or this development out, out in the middle of nowhere, 45 minutes outside of, uh, of town. It doesn't work that way. Don't think that you can build it and they will come in today's world. It just doesn't work that way. You've got to go where the demand is and fill the need in the niche of the demand. You've got to find out what the people want and give that to them. And then if you can marry that with an opportunity zone or the right kind of asset, that's a big thing, I guess. We didn't talk about, you know, how do you even determine highest and best use? So when it comes to commercial real estate, land development, anything like that, you always want to look at highest and best use, especially if you're repositioning an asset or developing ground up. And the way you determine highest and best use is by demand number one in the area that you're in. So if you're looking at a piece of land in an area, what do you have around you? Do you have a lot of rooftops or do you have a lot of commercial? So if you've got commercial, you probably need more rooftops. If you've got a lot of rooftops and you don't have a lot of commercial, then you probably need some commercial core assets like we talked about. Make sure that you look at what's around you, what is surrounding that asset if it's existing, what does your tenant mix look like, what do their leases look like, how long are they? What is the demand in the market? Where are things going? Look at the common sense, simple things. Make sure you understand the metrics, the language and the nuances of each asset type, and then uh, the class of each asset in those types and the demographics surrounding them. Then it's kind of hard to go wrong. I really love your approach on so many levels. I've been nodding throughout this entire interview. How can people get in touch with you? What type of mentees do you look for? People that have been in the business for a while, can you share a little bit there? GregDickerson.com. All my information's on there, GregDickerson.com. My cell number's 434-326-3903. I actually answer the phone, and I'm looking for people that want to do big things, that want to achieve results and success, and uh, are ready to take action. I've got some of the most successful investors in the industry out there today that I coach, and then I've got some beginners that are starting out. So the best fit for me is somebody that has some level of sophistication, some level of business success, and the ability to to take action. They got to have some capital to go work with or be able to raise it to be able to take advantage of a higher level project, whether it's commercial or multifamily and businesses. I I have some businesses that I'm working with. I still do equity capital. I uh, coach business owners and help them grow and scale their business. And sometimes I get involved if it's something that's, that's, you know, really scalable. I'll come in from an intellectual capital standpoint. We help them develop their teams and their people. And a lot of times we can see people double, triple, or even more their sales in a very short period of time. It sounds like you could be on a TV show doing those uh, (laughs) improve your business type of shows. (laughs) Yeah, Shark Tank meets the profit is kind of how I explain it to people. That's that's kind of what I am. Thank you so much for making the time. We really appreciate it and uh, your feedback has been incredibly valuable for all of us. Do you have any friends who would be interested in learning more about commercial real estate investing? If yes, be their best friend and share this podcast with them. Thank you all and see you next time.